I'm Dr. Jack West from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org under the news heading. Um, when I did my training, uh, I knew that I wanted to do internal medicine, but I wasn't entirely certain what subspecialty I wanted to, to do. And, and in fact, oncology was probably right at the bottom of uh, my list. And I think neurology was, was, uh, was my initial first choice. But in the course of my residency, I, I managed to look after some patients um, who ended up being diagnosed with cancer and I I found myself um, I guess relating to those patients um, perhaps differently to uh, the way I related to patients who were in for heart disease or um, uh, or respiratory infections and uh, I found uh, I found that I was able to make a connection at a personal level but was also really interested in science and and strange as my career has turned out to be in thoracic oncology I, I, I remember the first patient that really made me think about uh, doing lung cancer as a career and this was a young woman who shortly after um, she uh, had uh, delivered her first child presented with a pleural effusion which turned out to be a lung adenocarcinoma we didn't know it at the time because that was um, uh, probably around uh, two th- the year 2000, uh, sorry, the year 1995 or so, but she probably had an oncogene addicted lung cancer. She would have probably done very well from targeted therapy, but we, we didn't know that at the time and her outcome was uh, very different to what it would have been uh, today. What brought you to the University of Colorado for training now about 12 to 14 years ago. Yeah, so um, I think it's very important uh, in your career to uh, really get a sort of broader view than just about how oncology um, is practiced um, beyond just what you've seen in your own city or or potentially even in your own country. And uh, I was lucky that I had an opportunity after I did my PhD to do a postdoctoral fellowship um, in, in Colorado, and I had the privilege of working uh, in Colorado with uh, with Paul Bunn and with Fred Hirsch. And although my work was primarily in the the lab, um, I was introduced to how medicine was practiced in Australia. Importantly, I also got to meet a lot of people within the IASLC that. Um, uh, um, that those sort of initial introductions served as the basis of relationships which have developed over the the next five, ten years. Uh, So it was a really valuable time for me. Would you say that the oncology world, or perhaps particularly thoracic oncology world, has uh, changed to become more global over the time that you uh, have been in oncology? I think uh, I think that's very clear. I, I think um, even from uh, so so it's so easy now to to collaborate with people across the globe. With um, uh, well, travel's easy, but it's even easier to do teleconferences, video conferences. So distance is no longer a barrier for connections, and those connections extend from the research world, from the laboratory research world, through to clinical trials. 
Um, I, I remember being on many teleconferences for phase one trials with investigators in North America, Europe, and Australia. Now, the sad thing about that is with the time difference, Australia usually misses out and uh, um, I have been dialing in from time to time at 3 a.m. to fit in with US and European uh, uh, That really sounds but, awful, but I wouldn't sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but uh, the barrier that um, it's, it's easy to break down the barriers for international collaboration. And I think um, uh, I think that's clearly the way to progress things quickly to take advantage of the fantastic people, investigators, institutions, um, uh, and, and uh, patients who really want to be involved in research around the world and not limit yourself to one or two countries. How did you get a focus on ALK positive non-small cell? Because you are in the small group of global leaders in that field. It's obviously a, a, a narrow population, but one for which we've had a lot of important studies that have generally required international collaboration. So what what led to that and, and how feasible to do that is this in uh, Australia these days? Um, yeah, like many things, there, there was an element of serendipity, uh, of chance there. I just um, started a faculty position at, at Peter Mac and as a thoracic medical oncologist but also with an interest in phase one trials. And the very first phase one trial that um, I was a PI on was a phase one trial with a MET inhibitor, uh, uh, and a MET inhibitor targeted at MET patients. This MET inhibitor was crizotinib. And we started the trial, and the year after the trial started, uh, there was a, I remember very excitedly reading a pap paper by Hiro Mano from Japan that a subset of lung cancer patients have a rearrangement in a gene called ALK. And the reason I got excited was we knew that this drug inhibited MET, but it also happened to inhibit ALK. And, um, and the trial twisted 180 degrees to focus on ALK rearrangements and uh, very quickly with collaborations with people like uh, Alice Shaw and Ross Kamage and Ignatius Wu, um, we expanded the phase one study. We showed for the very first time that a targeted, targeted therapy uh, could do better than chemotherapy for patients with this rearrangement. And it was a real privilege to um, see the science move so quickly from a phase one trial through to phase three trials and, and through worldwide registration of, of the drugs. And it's, it's been a real privilege to see the field move even further with newer generation inhibitors. And, and it's been a real joy to work with uh, international colleagues um, like Alice and Ross and Ignatius on, on, this, uh, on, on this sort of work. One of the challenges with precision medicine, in the US at least, has been executing this on a broader scale than just the leading tertiary care centers. You've mentioned some of the leading places. Uh, of course, there are more, but 85% of patients in the US get their care at community centers, and some are larger, some are smaller. But the real world data that we've seen have been pretty humbling, showing that all too often patients are either not getting tested or when even when you have an encouraging driver mutation, that isn't acted on as reliably as you'd hope. And that would be the 
the goal, of course, of doing the testing is finding the prize of an EGFR mutation or ALK rearrangement, ROS, et cetera. But these are sometimes missed and we don't know exactly why. Maybe just the sheer delay of three, four weeks, perhaps, between sending the tissue and getting a result back and it gets scanned into an EMR. What What is the system, how does it, how well does molecular oncology work in a place like Australia that has a huge population spread out over a broad geography, but I think in relatively concentrated areas of cities like Melbourne and Sydney? Yeah, that's uh, that's that's um, a great question, Jack. I think it's it's a challenge uh, around the world. I, I think we've we've seen some sobering figures from the United States, where the perception is uh, that access to molecular testing is easier than it is around uh, the rest of the world. But within Australia, we we uh, have unique challenges. Um, as you said, a lot of the population lives. Um, uh, very far from um, uh, metropolitan centres. Um, there are issues to do with reimbursement of tests. Um, the um, testing is really driven by access to medications. So the only uh, reimbursed tests in Australia are tests for ALK, uh, for EGFR, ALK and ROS, because we have drugs approved for those uh, three oncogenes. And prior to approval of um, uh, those drugs, uh, testing really was very limited. And I guess that's another issue. The time to approval of therapies um, is, uh, there are delays certainly compared uh, with the United States with approvals um, of drugs. Crizotinib, for example, was approved in the US in 2011, but not until 2014 in, in, in Australia. Um, I think um, the um, the real challenge will come as um, we find effective drugs to target these rarer subtypes such as RET and NTRAC and uh, implement implementation of comprehensive genomic testing uh, will be a real challenge. I think we're, we're making progress with um, targeted oncogene testing, um, the, the issues of tissue, the issues of um, uh, knowledge about therapies and education of uh, physicians to, to get enough tissue and to order the testing in a timely manner uh, remain. And, uh, but I think these are similar problems that are experienced around the world. Yeah. How difficult is it to deliver concurrent chemo radiation? I mean, what do people do if they are from more than 45 minutes, 60 minutes away? Do they uh, come and relocate temporarily to Melbourne or Sydney, or are there uh, radiation facilities kind of dotted uh, geographically in broader areas? Yeah, so that's uh, that's changing. There are more um, uh, regional centres that um, uh, that are being um, fitted out with uh, radio access to, to radiotherapy. Um, but Australia is such a big country, so the size of um, Australia is, is about the same as the size of the continental US. And the population, although it's concentrated around the coast, does sort of disperse across, um, across uh, you know, a vast expanse of land. Um, so many patients do have to travel long distances for treatment. They have to relocate. Um, uh, to the metropolitan cities uh, for the duration of, you know, for the six weeks of their concurrent chemoradiation for, 
for, for uh, locally advanced non-small cell lung cancer. And, and, and um, to the credit of the governments, there are infrastructure that support that with sort of assisted funding for patient travel and, and accommodation during the treatment. Uh, the extreme example is in areas of Australia like um, uh, Queensland, which the distances are thousands of kilometres, and and yeah, and that's where you hear about the flying doctor service. Uh, um, uh, but 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 it is a challenge, and and the government is sort of addressing, or that there are efforts to address or get over the tyranny of distance through things like telehealth, which uh, which are starting to get used more. Uh, have you used telehealth services at this point, or is that just a nascent concept? Uh, so, so I have, and um, uh, and, and it's as easy as uh, picking up an iPad, and and uh, and it's really not any. It's not much more complicated than a Skype uh, conversation, for example. Um, I I think I find it um, I find it quite different to a. Uh, face-to-face in-person uh, consultation but for a patient having a follow-up visit um, who has to travel um, uh, 50, 80, 100 miles to get to the clinic um, uh, um, it's it's a really useful uh, tool and, and um, I think we'll start using it more and more. People are exploring how it can be used for clinical trials. I think that is much more challenging, and I think there are lots of issues that work, need to be worked through, but that's being explored as well. Yeah, we're definitely very interested in that at City of Hope as well, just because you know, clinical trials, ideally you wouldn't want them to be only available to people within close striking distance of, of uh, you know, the, the within easy driving distance of the centers, uh, but too often that's the way it works. That's right. And in, in Australia, as I'm sure in other places around the world, there's good data that uh, cancer outcomes are worse for people that live in regional centres compared to metropolitan centres. So I think we need to think about innovative ways like that to, to try to get to improve that situation. Peter Mack is a, a very, uh, very highly respected centre uh, that I imagine draws people not just from your area, but even from outside of Australia. Do you have many patients coming from other parts of Australasia, you know, just other cities to at least get a consult and maybe even get their care with you? We, we do. We certainly get people from around the state, from other states coming in for, for consultations. It's um, the healthcare system is much more challenging in terms of overseas uh, patients. So we have um, uh, a system called Medicare, which is quite different to the U.S. Medicare, and it's it's a healthcare system that covers every Australian and pays for their for hospital visits, for for medications, and so on. But if you're not a, a Australian citizen, none of that's covered. So. Uh, there's certain, certainly financial barriers um, to patients from outside Australia coming in for, for treatment um, within Australia, but um, we certainly have treated patients from New Zealand, from uh, even mainland China. Um, a great example I have of that is a patient from mainland China whose daughter lived in Melbourne who came to us for a trial. and. Um, I asked, I asked the patient, so why don't you go to Hong Kong? The trial's open in Hong Kong. And she said, they don't speak my language uh, in, in Hong Kong. Uh, 
she uh, um, uh, she was from Beijing and she didn't speak Cantonese, so it was uh, it was easier for her to to come to as a Mandarin speaker. It was easier for her to come to Melbourne than to to Hong Kong. Who'd have thought? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much for taking the time, Ben. Really appreciate it. Uh, on behalf of the IASLC, this is Jack West. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more lung cancer considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues. This is Dr. Jack West. Until next time.